These days, snowboarding is really popular in the colder climates, and of course everyone knows what it is. But it's actually a relatively new sport, especially when compared to traditional snow skiing. The very first snow skis are dated all the way back to around 8000 BCE and were found in northern China. They were basically long pieces of wood, like six feet, which is about two meters, and were covered with horse hair. Snowboards, on the other hand, have come about much more recently. Jake Burton is known as the father of snowboarding, and he recalls back when he discovered there was this new, unconventional way to move on snow. I was 13 or 14 when I got my first snurfer, which was simply like a skateboard for snow. And it was nothing more than a piece of wood that was curved on the end. It had a rope on the front that that's how you would sort of maintain your balance and not lose it. I bought a snurfer and uh, I just fell in love with this sensation of surfing in snow. The first ski resort to even allow snowboarders to share the mountain with skiers was in Vermont, and that was just in 1983. Snowboarding has continued to grow in popularity, and it just became an Olympic sport in 1998. My guest today is Evan, and he loves to snowboard. He and his wife, Kaylin, lived in Northern California. They're young and athletic, and they would go several times a year. It was pretty much their favorite way to spend a weekend outdoors. But there was one Friday morning on the mountain that Evan remembers in detail because he almost didn't come home. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. 
Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When this happened, you were with your wife, Kaylin, and are you both pretty experienced snowboarders? I would say we're both pretty skilled snowboarders, but um, yeah, we lived in San Francisco at the time. And like a lot of people in San Francisco, you just go up to Tahoe on the weekends. So we probably snowboarded seven, eight, nine, ten days a year at most. And we're, we're good snowboarders, but not experienced mountaineers or anything like that. Now, this happened in Squaw Valley, which is Northern California. Is this a place where you lived near? Um, had, you, had you been there before? Yeah, we'd definitely been there before. Um, yeah, we lived in San Francisco and Squaws are now called Palisades, um, is one of the biggest mountains in the Tahoe Basin area. Tahoe is the nearest big kind of ski destination for you know, anyone in the Bay Area. So yeah, we, we had had, yeah, I've been to Squaw I don't know, eight or nine times, pretty familiar with it, as well as other mountains in the, the Tahoe Basin area. And do you usually snowboard rather than ski? Is that just your preference? Yeah, I, you know, I ski when I was little, but yeah, for the last 20 years or so, I've always been a snowboarder. Same is true of my wife, Kaylin, but um, we're proficient in uh, just doing our normal snowboarding thing that day. When you say, your normal snowboarding is an avalanche always kind of in the back of your mind or was it then? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, as most people that just go to resorts a week or two a year, you're aware conceptually of like what an avalanche is. You know, you probably at some hotel, like watching the weather channel, like freaky when freaky accidents happen and all that, you've probably seen the those videos and maybe you've seen it in the movies. And so you're aware of the concept of what it is, but I don't think it's a, no, I don't think it's something you would normally think about inbounds in a resort. You think about it watching pro skiers in the backcountry doing crazy lines in Alaska, but no, just your being under the chairlift at your, your day-to-day resort is probably something that you wouldn't think about as just, you know, a kind of a weekend warrior. What kind of safety gear or equipment is normally recommended for what you were doing for snowboarding? recommended is tricky. Like, so, you know, most of the time, you know, resorts don't do a whole lot around education or, you know, safety for just the general population of weekend type folks that, that come to their resort. I mean, they do a ton of work normally around avalanche mitigation and blasting and bombing to make sure that that stuff never happens in bounds. And as such, they don't really put much effort into educating people around safety equipment uh, when they're inbounds. Um, now, obviously, it can happen. There probably should be a better effort put into education. But you know, in theory, you know, to answer your question, what, what kind of you know, safety equipment should people have when it's snowed a lot, like multiple feet you know, in the course of a small amount of time, it's not unreasonable to have a, a beacon, which is essentially a device that just lets other people with beacons know where you are, kind of like a, a radio almost. And then a probe, which is a, a big long stick essentially, so that if someone is under the snow, you can essentially poke them and find them. 
and then a shovel for when you do find them, you can actually uncover them and get the snow off of them and, and get them out of there. Well, what activates the beacon? Is it going off all the time or how? I mean, yeah. So the way beacons work, they're completely useless unless other people have them. So it's, it's a communication device. And the way it works is you ride with it always on. So it's always transmitting. And then if an avalanche does happen, the, the people that, and, and you get buried, for instance, the people that are above ground turn their beacons from transmit to search or, or receive. And then everyone, the only person that didn't is the person that's underground and are under the snow. And then everyone has that person's signal and can kind of be guided to them like radar, essentially. You know, you mentioned the pole that people can stick into the snow. I'm always picturing that poking somebody in the eye with that. <laughs> that would be fine. You know, when the alternative is not living, you would you would take an eye poke. Um, I've thought about that as well. But yeah, you're uh, you're pretty happy if you strike any any part of the person. Same thing is true with a shovel. You're always like, you, you know, you're a little bit hesitant to like you know, jam a shovel in someone's face. But again, the alternative is much worse. So that is a right. totally acceptable cost. Especially when time is uh, such a critical factor. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there a separate avalanche the day before yours? Yeah, not at Squaw, but in the, the kind of broader region. Yeah, it had snowed six feet over two days, which is a ton. That's that's a lot of snow. Someone had uh, gotten lost the day before in a storm and perished. So there were a few events that were tragic that were kind of in as a result of this big, huge storm. And then, yeah, our, our day was, you know, a Friday, but yeah, it, it had started snowing on Wednesday and, and that, that person had passed in the storm on a Thursday. So that, yeah, there was some other stuff going around on around the time. So this kind of thing was in the news sort of, uh, at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's always a balance, like the resorts, you know, you, you want snow, people love to ski and powder, right. Cause it's fun. And anytime they get snow, you know, all their Instagrams and social accounts are saying, Hey, we have two feet, three feet. You know, that's when these incidents do happen. So, it's, you know, it's a delicate balance. Snow is good for everyone. It's fun and it's good for the, you know, the resort's business, but it, it has dangers associated with it as well. Take us through what happened that day. What time did you get started? Yeah, it's interesting. So we, we got there 830 and mountain opens at nine or something like that. Uh, however, uh, on this particular day, it was what's called a delayed opening. So they, Squaw was doing a bunch of avalanche mitigation control, meaning they were setting off bombs in areas that are likely to slide an avalanche so that so that it so that it doesn't. So they do that when the mountains close, they go and bomb everything so that when they do open the mountain theory, everyone's safe and ready to go. So they didn't open the mountain until 11, 11 30, which meant they were bombing for they they start earlier. They start before the mountain opens. So they were probably bombing for three or four hours because again and it snowed three or four feet in that last day. So Everyone knew, well, not everyone, the, the mountain at least knew that the avalanche risk was very high, which is why they did a pretty serious amount of mitigation in the morning. And then, you know, at 11 or 11.30, that's when they decided that the mountain had been sufficiently kind of cleared out and it was safe for everyone to go up there. And so they uh, started spinning the chairs at 11.30. And at that point, everyone's been kind of sitting there super excited for two hours in a lodge, ready to get out there and shred some powder. And so there were probably, there were a lot of people waiting. There. Yeah, definitely. So on days like that, especially when it's delayed opening, there's a lot of anticipation, you know, big lines because no one can go anywhere. So they all kind of queue up, you know, at the bottom of the mountain, getting ready to 
kind of take on the mountain. So yeah, there's when they opened the lift, there's huge line. Probably took us 30 minutes to to get through that initial line and even onto the first chair. This was our first run. So we wait half an hour in the lift line. And it's crazy. So, you know, it's an advanced lift. It, it serves only black diamonds, but it's also one of the most popular lifts. So, you know, the chair in front of us was a nine-year-old girl. <laughs> so it was kind of scary just to see the, had that been her, you know, might've been a totally worse, different outcome. So, you know, the chair takes 12 minutes or so to get to the top. We kind of strapped on our boards and you know, we, we could tell it was deep, like there's a ton of snow, um, which we were excited about again, like coming from the city, you know, as a weekend warrior, it's, you know, it's rare that you get powder days. And so you're pretty excited when you do, but yeah, we strapped on our boards, started snowboarding. It was deep. It was like at least thigh high, like at points, waist high powder, which is pretty insane and fun. So describe that when you're, when you said waist high. Are are you snowboarding on top of that, or are you kind of cutting a path through the snow? Um, a little bit, a little bit of both. Like when you're moving quickly, like think about how a boat goes on water. Like it'll you'll plane up on top of it, but when you're not, you kind of sink down into it. So when you say you know thigh high powder, waist high powder, you know that means there's that much loose, you know, really dry snow that you can spray around really easy. Um, so it, it's fun because it you know it feels like kind of surfing on pillows, if you will. And it's a really kind of flying like feeling. But yeah, you can also get stuck in it, which we did. <laughs> and yeah, obviously it could it's a, that's a lot of material just to to be moved around. I can imagine if you just if you happen to just stop, I mean, how do you get started again? Well that's that was kind of so that was what happened. So like we went down if you're on a steeper slope, it's a lot easier to get started because you know you, you have gravity on your side. But if you get stopped on a more flat section in that kind of snow, it is a lot of effort to kind of yeah, even stand up and dig yourself out a little bit and then get enough momentum where you can actually kind of power through some of the stuff. So we did the first part of the steep slope and that was, you know, again, that part's really fun. And then we kind of stopped to take a rest on a flatter part. And at that point, like once you make that stop on the flatter part, you know, you can't, you can't get out of that situation really quickly, right? You're kind of, it takes a while to kind of manually get your way get some momentum back and get out of those flat spots. So that was actually where the avalanche occurred was it was actually from above us. We were in the flat spot and kind of stuck there and someone triggered the avalanche from above us on the steep part. And then it swept down into us and kind of took us in that flat part. It's extremely fast. So we we were just stuck and kind of playing around like, Whoa, this is so much snow. Like this is crazy. And then I heard someone yell I just kind of heard a crack and looked back and saw 10 foot wall of snow coming, but that was only half a second from the time I heard that person yell, I barely had time to get my head around and see it before it hit me. It moves in really, it, that wall of snow moves really fast. Yeah. It was less than a second from when I heard it to when it actually hit me. What's it like to be hit by a 10 foot wall of snow? It is. It's wild. It force wise, it probably feels like getting hit by like an NFL linebacker. Although there's no like single point, it's you know, the whole wall is overtaking you. So th there's a good amount of force, but then after the initial contact, it feels almost more analogous to like a river or like being held underwater by a wave. If if, you, if, if anyone's ever experienced that, where 
it's moving. Like you're, you're moving, it's moving. It's got a fluid dynamic to it. So one of the challenges and the tough parts was after this thing hit me, it started taking my head kind of down. And so I'm swimming kind of dog paddling if, to try to stay upright and above the snow. And it's, it's trying to somersault you in all different directions. So it's a wild experience. It's, you know, there's not a whole lot I can compare it to. It does feel like more like water, like white water in a river or really big waves in the ocean almost. My snowboard stayed attached, you know, which is another kind of big object that it, that the, the river, the kind of snow river would move around and kind of capture. So that was tough to, you're trying to use your arms to stay above. And then you have this kind of anchor almost or sail that's catching a ton of snow underneath. That's kind of pulling you downwards. That made it tough. Yeah. It seems like it would limit your mobility. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, it's a big, it's an anchor essentially (laughs) when this is happening. Was Kaylin next to you or how, how far away was she when, when you were hit? Yeah, she was maybe 20 feet away from me, like down the hill and off to the side a little bit. So I caught the majority of it or, well, I mean, she caught it too, but I I caught it all 10 feet of it. And so it was way above my head. And by the time it was done, I was fully buried, like six feet under completely under the snow. Caitlin came to a rest basically with snow up to her chest. And so her, her head was above the snow and in the air, which was good. Yeah. So she was pretty close, but definitely caught a slightly different piece of the avalanche. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? 
It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25 what. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I wanted to hear from Kaylin what it felt like to get hit by all that snow. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. I was very much, you know, in my own world, having a good time. I felt snow first hit my back pretty high, I want to say my shoulders. And I thought Evan was being playful, you know, as he passed me, spraying up some snow. But... Then the snow underneath my snowboard went out and I knew immediately that this was some sort of a slide that I was in. Being swept up in an avalanche feels exactly the way you can imagine that it feels. It, it's heavy, it's forceful, it's loud, everything went completely white, it's disorienting, you don't know what is up and down maybe like a snow tornado. I mean, you're really encased in it and you're just praying the whole time, let me land on top of this. And you won't know until it stops. So I came to a stop where the avalanche met a cat track 
and ripped off my goggles because they had been filled up with snow. And I had my two arms and chest down. I was buried and I, I knew I was alive. So where's my husband? I saw a guy actually on the cat track upright on his skis because it hadn't quite reached him look at me and I looked back at him and I just said are you effing kidding me are you kidding me I was in such disbelief at what had just happened and I was looking almost for this stranger to tell me that it didn't just happen that wasn't a dream and I asked him twice and then I just started digging myself out One of the miracles in all of this was that it was the first run of the day and we weren't even supposed to stop. We were actually driving through Tahoe to get to Colorado from San Francisco and it had, it had been dumping and we said, should we? Let's do it. And so amidst some of that chaos, I never tightened my, my boots. And so as I was digging out, I realized that I could shimmy my feet and my calves out of my boots. And so I left my boots attached to my snowboard under the snow and kind of crawled my way out. And so there I was, no helmet on, no goggles. My gloves had gone missing, standing in my socks, just frantically screaming for Evan. Back to Evan. That much snow on that kind of slope. I think about where it started, you know, it was a good hundred yards up the hill and that got to me in less than a second. So, you know, you think about that thing is moving a hundred yards a second. So it's, it's going quickly. Um, Again, it did kind of go from the steeper part where it has a ton of force and momentum and then it dissipates in the flatter spot, but it, it has a lot of power to carry through that flatter spot. So it took me from, it took me a good 80 yards. And during that 80 yards, I'm just getting white, whitewashed somersault washing machine <laughs> all over the place, trying to hopefully stay upright, which ended up not happening. Yeah, it was probably about 80 to 100 yards of, of travel uh, over the course of maybe six seconds or so. So when, you, when the forward motion stopped, what did you feel then? Was that relief that it finally stopped or was it panic because, okay, what now? Yeah, that was... That was the scariest part. It was it was more panic, you know. While while you're in the washing machine, you're doing something, right? Like you have a fighting chance, and you're you're actively trying to help your situation. Versus when I came to arrest, I, I tried to move my limbs, like I could physically move them. I wasn't injured, but I was just encased in this cement-like snow, and and there's just nowhere for them, my limbs to go. So trying to move and realizing you can't move incredibly scary and foreign feeling, first of all, but then it's also, you don't have a whole lot of options or things that you can do. So that's what kind of puts you into this pretty intense mental situation where first you're trying to reconcile and figure out like, what is this thing? Like, cause you know, again, like coming from the city as a weekend warrior, not that familiar with avalanches or experienced with them. So it, it took a little bit of recall just to be like, Oh, is that, is that one of those this is an avalanche, like one of those things that you hear about, like on TV and the movies. Damn, it is like, oh, this is bad. Like, is this how it ends? Like, this is this is not good. Like, I'm in trouble. I can't do anything. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was a panic situation for sure. And snow definitely, if you were six feet below the surface, that's the snow has a lot of weight, even though, I mean, people might be hearing this and picturing that 
fresh powder, the dry powder. It's not it's not a wet snow, which would have been even worse, probably. Well, it is kind of wet, particularly in the in Tahoe, California, when it gets this much snow, like it does carry a lot of water because it, it, it comes in from the ocean and then it's not super, super cold. And so, it, you know, relative to some other areas like Wyoming, yeah, it actually does carry it. It's heavier and it does carry a lot of water, especially once it moves and kind of consolidates. It's compacting and kind of settling. And so by the time it's on top of you, yeah, it's, it's pretty dense. People have described it like cement often where it's, it's heavy and yeah, there's not much you can do to move it. So you realize you, you're stuck. You can't do anything. What's going through your head then? How long were you consciously aware of that? Yeah. So I was totally conscious, you know, when I came to a rest and my, you know, I kind of went from maybe a few seconds of trying to figure out like what this is to what can I do to get out of this? But, you know, maybe after 10, 15 seconds, when you realize, crap, I'm buried in an avalanche and there's not much I can do is weird foreign feeling of despair and just is really scary. Yeah. I thought about like, shit, is is this how it ends? And thought about my wife and like, I eventually I just kind of resigned and was like, well, let's just see what happens. And hopefully people up top, around but as far as you knew they could have been buried too right yeah you have no idea what's going on there's also this like intense you're intensely removed from the scenario so like snow is so dampening like you it's like being in a soundproof room like you can't hear anything it's completely dark you can't move so it's a sensory deprivation where you're you know essentially in a different world right and so you you are and you feel incredibly disconnected from what's going on outside, which is just an interesting kind of place to be. Eventually I just tried to kind of push out some of those more panic thoughts in place of just like some calm at that, at that time, you know, we're 15, 20 seconds into it. And luckily, you know, not luckily, but the reality is that your body starts to lose oxygen at that point. <laughs> and that transition is subtle. And I just kind of maybe after 30, 40 seconds, kind of subtly lost consciousness or blocked out or went to sweep or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it was a transition from intense panic and scariness to trying to like just manage it and and calm down and slow down my breathing and conserve oxygen. But it's a rare to be in that is this the end type of process and not something that I would wish on anyone, obviously. It's such a contrast. You're six feet under under the snow, total darkness, can't hear anything, can't move, but yet there was a lot of activity above the snow because people were looking for you. And one of the people who desperately wanted to know where Evan was, was his wife, Kaylin. So at this point, I'm standing in my socks in the, in the avalanche debris. My goggles had been full of snow, so I ripped those off along with my helmet. My gloves had come off along the way. And I'm just, I'm, I'm frantically searching for Evan. I'm looking back up at the avalanche debris field and it's, it's huge and there's no people. And I know very quickly that, that he's under there somewhere. So I tried running up the hill to go find Evan or to search for him. I'm yelling his name. 
And because I'm in my socks and this is a big, you know, debris field, I'm just post holing through. I can't make any progress and I get more and more frantic and I'm screaming louder and louder for my husband, Evan, please, where is he? And a woman in a green coat came and swallowed me up. She bear hugged me and sat me down. At this point, a few minutes had passed. So it seemed like I was this lone person left, still screaming, the person who hadn't found their loved one. So she grabbed me and sat me down and looked me in the eyes and said, does he have a beacon? I said, no. Um, and, you know, at this point, they had yelled that they had found someone and so I just, I, I knew if that, if that was him, hopefully he was okay. If that wasn't him, he wasn't going to be okay. And so this woman sat with me and helped pass the time and asked me some questions. And we, we sat there for a few minutes and waited until they yelled down that, um, they had found someone he had tan snow pants and a gray jacket. And I knew that that was Evan. And I remember yelling up, is he alive? Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. The The whole thing was probably a total of six minutes. I was probably without oxygen for four minutes and 30 seconds or something like that. Then Caitlin was somehow able to hoist herself out of her boots and her board, which is incredible <laughs> feat of strength. So she got above the snow and she's in her socks trying to just make noise and like draw some attention to the area. Obviously it's like you said, total contrast between it's like being under the water, right? Quiet, nothing going on, super just dark. And then above is total chaos, people screaming, looking for people and like trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. People kind of started coming to the area. Someone apparently saw like, luckily I had just a tiny tip of my snowboard sticking out, which someone saw, you know, again, I didn't have, I was not wearing any safety equipment like like beacons or probes or shovels. So yeah, even if other people were, which they were, beacons only work if two people have them, right? So there's there's nothing there's nothing to find me with other than a visual cue or just if there wasn't that, it would have been just random striking and digging around in the snow. But someone did see just the, the tiny tip of my snowboard, which brought them over to my area. I think it helped also that it was a Friday. So you probably had a slightly more skilled and experienced crowd than like a weekend day. And so there were several people that that did have shovels and beacons and probes. Yeah, the shovels were the most helpful and obviously uncovering me quickly. So yeah, it, it probably took them four and a half minutes to go from finding me to uncovering my face. Of course, they don't know how deep you are either. They see your snowboard or the tip of it. And that honestly, that that sticking out of the snow was literally what made you survive this. Yeah, definitely. That, yes, absolutely. Like I had my snowboard not been sticking out because I didn't have a beacon. It probably would be very unlikely that I would live because you know, again, just random striking in a huge area. 
we should have a beacon manufacturer sponsor this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Black Diamond. <laughs> yeah. I guess it was a woman and her husband. Or who was it that spotted your snowboard? Yeah, I think it was yeah, as a woman spotted it. And then she was able to get two or three or four, two or three other people over there to start helping her dig. Some people had shovels, some didn't, but they were they were actively scratching away trying to uncover me. Luckily, like when they did uncover me, four and a half minutes is a reasonably long time. Someone could have passed out by then and would need to be resuscitated. Luckily, I did not need to be. I just kind of woke up on my own, which was an interesting experience that, that I'll tell you about too. But uh, I came back on my own, which was nice. Yeah, and we've got the video of that. Someone took a video when you, they finally uncovered your face. Yeah. That's got to be, I mean, of course you were kind of unconscious for a while. And that's the other thing I'm thinking of four or five minutes without oxygen. That, I mean, you're getting to the point where there could be damage to your brain to not have yeah. oxygen. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly on the borderline. Yeah. It's, you don't want to go much further than that. So, yeah, and we'll have that video uh, on the website in the show notes for this episode so people can see that when you actually got dug out. What was the first thing you thought of when you saw daylight? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it felt, if you ever come back from Novocaine or whatever they use at the dentist, like it felt a lot like that. You know, it was the opposite of going into the light. It's light coming, you know, going back through the tunnel, if you will, and back towards the light. I almost felt like a kind of, euphoric drug-like experience, you know, because of the lack of oxygen. And so it, you know, it had almost like an ethereal, almost heavenly feel at first where you're really lightheaded and like, Ooh, and like loopy. My lips were blue. I could feel that they were like, there was no sensation in them. So yeah, it, it felt like euphoric at first. And then like eventually consciousness kind of crept back in your, your rational brain started to take over a little bit again and like try to assess what the heck just happened, um, where we've been for the last little bit. But yeah, the, my first thought was like, where's my wife? Like, cause I had no idea at that point. Right. I knew I had just been in something terrible. So I assumed that was the case for her. That's what I read. The woman that dug you out when she finally got to your face and you were somewhat conscious, she said that was your first words. Where's my wife? Yeah, that was scary. That was a horrible feeling. I, I didn't know. And you obviously you want to know. It took 10 seconds or so for someone to say, like, is your wife wearing a maroon jacket or something like that? And she's she's looking for you. And and so and then I heard her voice from down the hill. And so luckily I didn't have to spend that long wondering, but you know, it was scary. Yeah, you know, I very different experience than my wife had where, you know, she had to spend five, six minutes wondering what was going to happen, which I don't envy and was pretty, must've been pretty awful, but it was intense for sure. So she was probably just looking around for you and then she saw the commotion up above that they were digging you out. Is that how she realized that you were discovered? Yeah. I mean, she was, she was 20 feet before me when the avalanche hit and then she was now 80 feet to a hundred feet down the mountain from where I came to rest afterwards. So she wasn't, you know, in a great spot to search. She's also in her socks, <laughs> um, you know, in, in really deep snow. So you, she can't move for all intents and purposes. And 
there was a lady that came down nicknamed Heather to try to comfort her and just keep her calm and keep her in place until they figured out what was going on with me. Like they, they knew obviously that they were digging out a body at that point. They didn't, no one knew whether that body was alive. So they wanted to kind of keep her there until they confirmed that I was actually me and alive and all that. How long before it really sunk in that you could have died that day? That's a tough question. I mean, it, I mean, it immediately sunk in as soon as five, six seconds after I came to rest after when I was encased in snow, that was the first time I thought of it. I was like, crap, is this it? Like this is, this is could how it could be how I could go. It was like in an avalanche, which is random because uh, I don't ski that much. So yeah, it, you know, it, it sunk in then, you know, immediately afterwards, of course, it is just, I don't know, you're in a state of shock at that point. So it's like, you're not necessarily processing everything and you're just trying to like still kind of get out of the situation. Like we still felt like we're kind of on the mountain. Like we need to still get out of here. But it's interesting afterwards. Yeah. You know, it's a process that lasts, who knows, days, weeks, months, years. And even the night of, it was like, there's definitely conflicting weird emotions where we're like, Oh my God, we're alive. You know, like let's, let's get a steak and some champagne and stuff. And then you're like, wait a second. Like, what? We actually just almost died. Like, it's crazy. So I don't know. It's, there's no playbook on how to react appropriately to that stuff. You know, I think you expect like some sort of, I don't know, life changing kind of viewpoint to just dawn upon you. But it, you know, it's a subtle thing that evolves over time and you learn to kind of grapple with it in different ways. You know, in a lot of ways it's positive. Like you're incredibly thankful and grateful for what you have. And, you know, there's kind of a little bit of a new lease on life element to it, but at the same time, it's also trauma, right? That you have to, to deal with that manifest itself in other ways. You know, for example, yeah, I've developed like some claustrophobia, particularly on planes for some reason that I did not have before this incident. Interestingly, it hasn't shown up in snowboarding too much, but <laughs> I can still do that, but it has shown up in other areas. What did you do right after? I mean, you didn't, you didn't take the chair and go take another run, I assume. <laughs> no, no, we snowboarded down ourselves, which was kind of weird. You know, again, there's kind of a chaotic moment in ski patrol is, you know, looking for other people and stuff like that. So they're like, you guys good? We're like, I guess. And so like we, we snowboarded down to this bar called the rocker and Kaylin again has been in her socks for half an hour. So she's got like frostbite on her feet. Like we asked for a glass of warm water. It was trippy too. Cause like at that point they closed the mountain after this happened. And so everyone's at the rocker, you know, drinking, having fun. And no one knows who we are. Like we're just, they don't know that we just survived the avalanche. Everyone's drinking, having a good time. Like we asked for a glass of like warm water. Waiter forgets about it. And we're eventually, we're just like, this is, we just got to get out of here. So like we left, went and picked up our puppy from the puppy school there and just went to our hotel. Just to en enjoy being alive. Yeah. I mean, again, like that, there was part of that for sure, but there's also just a lot of shock and other feelings, you know, it, it wasn't, it was hard to make sense of how we felt like, you know, it'd be easy to say like, oh yeah, we had a new lease on life and it was like, everything was great. But like, yeah, there's some of that, but like that wasn't, you know, there's an intense range of conflicting emotions that you, know, you don't normally have to figure out how to deal with. Yeah. And it's hard to predict what the effects are going to be mentally 
in the long run. So in all, for that avalanche, five people were buried and rescued, and only one had serious injuries. And you, you weren't injured at all, right? No. Um, I, yeah, I, I was not. One guy broke his leg, I believe. I was the only full burial. But yeah, like physically, uh, other than maybe slight oxygen deprivation. <laughs> I don't think I'm dumber today, but could be. Who knows? Uh, other than that, yeah, no, no physical injuries, which is kind of crazy and impressive because usually an avalanche that magnitude with an eight-foot crown, as they call it, which is the size of the, the release, like that's a lot of power and can cause injuries, but I was, I was very lucky. How long before you went snowboarding again? I think three or four days, actually. So we that was the first day of like a 16-day kind of trip through the West. We were starting in Tahoe and then going out to Aspen in Colorado and then going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming as our last stop, which is where we live now. Yeah, three days later, we we did a very sunny, like chill day in Aspen in Colorado, just doing groomers, which felt fine and totally safe. Yeah, we were back on the hill, hill pretty quickly. Kalen's takeaway from this experience, have fun, but be safe. Ski patrol at every mountain works incredibly hard in tough situations with a lot of bravery most days to clear the snow and to bomb it and to make sure that it's safe for us skiers to recreationally get out there without a lot of worry. The reality is that it's still a mountain and it's still mother nature. And ultimately you, you are at her mercy. We learned that the hard way we got another chance. And so our hope is that people can learn from our story and realize that it could be you, just a weekend skier out there to have fun. Trust Ski Patrol, by all means, they're doing a great job. But have some wherewithal about the situation. Take an educational class, take an airy avalanche class, do some reading, educate yourself. Stop every few minutes and check on your friends. Make sure no one fell in a tree well or there wasn't a slide. Look around. Just just be more aware. Consider buying a beacon and a, and a probe and learning how to use those devices. Because even if it's not you, you know, hopefully this doesn't happen to us again. But if we're ever in this situation where we can be one of those first responders, we will have our shovel ready. We will have our, our probe and our beacon ready to help save someone else's life. It's really hard to talk about those five, six minutes without Evan, without knowing if I would see him again. You know, we are newlyweds. This was the first ski day of a a three-week ski trip for us. We were on cloud nine and it just turned on us so quickly. I'm so thankful to the woman who was able to call me down and had the exact appropriate response was to get the the frantic screaming wife to just sit down and calm down so that the first responders could do their work. I'm so thankful to the bystanders, the other skiers, such as Joe Brialt, who is who were able to find Evan and who were brave enough to ski across this avalanche debris and to ultimately save his life. Since the avalanche, we haven't at all shied away from the snow. And we actually moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming since. And we now backcountry ski. We ski at the resort 25 plus days a year. 
we have a one and a half year old that we can't wait to get on a snowboard next year. You know, this is very much a part of our life and we're appreciative and grateful and indebted to the ski community and to everyone. We, we got a second chance. We hope to continue to ski and help educate people on inbound avalanches. I think now we're, we're very much aware of like when it does snow a lot, even in bounds, even in a resort, like you need to be thinking about that and be just aware of where you are and be prepared that that's, that's a real risk that you're undertaking, you know, going out in that sort of environment. And we ended up taking a, what's called an Abbey one or avalanche one course in Jackson here where we ended up moving, which was cool. Like we got to learn all about snow science and how these avalanches happen and, and what are the risk factors and how to identify that. So yeah, equipment's one part of it. And then, yeah, we, we did buy beacons and probes and shovels. And then we also bought these kind of avalanche airbag vests that you can pull and it inflates a big balloon when you get pulled uh, in an avalanche. But you know, probably more important is the, the education, like being able to understand like where avalanches happen so you can stay out of those risky areas or stay out from underneath them as well. So yeah, that was a really good experience for us to, it just helped us have a lot more, feel like we have a lot more control over the risk that we're taking. You know, again, back when this happened in Squaw, we didn't know any better, right? We were just weekend warriors from the city. You know, when you're in bounds, you don't think about this stuff. And so we had no idea that the risk that we were taking, which was actually fairly significant, but now we have a much better understanding of that and we make those calculations accordingly. I can imagine when you were taking that avalanche safety course, you must have been like the celebrity in that class. Oh, you're the guy? You're the guy that was buried? Yeah, it was um, yeah, some helpful first party knowledge. And we, we, yeah, we did use that example of the avalanche a lot in class just to have someone talk about it. And we kind of analyzed that day and what we'd look for this time around. And yeah, it was, it was interesting for sure. Have you met up with any of the people that helped rescue you that day? We did, yeah. So there's a couple, Margin and Joe Brialt. He was one of the ones that came down to to help start digging digging me out. And so we connected with them. We we spoke on the phone maybe a couple of weeks after it happened. Uh, and then we actually got to meet Joe and Margin and their whole family out in Jackson Hole maybe two years after it happened, which was fun. You know, particularly it was great to just thank them. I mean, we I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him and a few others like him that were involved in that rescue. And just interesting to hear their experience, but yeah, great to just show gratitude to them, which was fun. And it was she's the one that spotted your snowboard, is that right? I think she was actually up on the hill filming as a different lady that spotted the snowboard, or maybe it might have been Joe. I'm not entirely sure, but um yeah, they were involved at least in some capacity in, in getting us out of there, which was which was huge. As long as somebody saw it, that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Craziest part was just definitely that first initial instance where we came uh, came to rest after the the kind of initial wave, which is just a, a wild range of emotions and just a journey from just no idea, conf confusion to panic to resignation to trying to do the best to stay alive. That, that part was just really interesting and scary. There's a reason why snowboarding falls into the category of extreme sports and why it's probably not going to be on my bucket list. 
If you want to see the video that was shot as Evan was actually being dug out of the snow, I have that in the show notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 109. And I want to thank my booker, Fernanda, for helping make this episode possible by getting in touch with Evan to set up our conversation. All right, now here's a little something I want to tell you, just between you and me. You're listening to me at the moment, but I know you listen to other podcasts. I know I sure do. Sometimes I can hardly keep up with the new episodes that are coming out for all the shows I subscribe to, and that's a good thing. We're all lucky to have such a big supply of content to listen to. Well, I want to let you in on a little secret. For all those podcasts you listen to, the hosts of those shows would really love to hear from you. You might think that podcast hosts get buried in tons of email and voicemails, but you'd probably be surprised. This is something that podcast hosts know, but now I'm letting you in on it. Because if you listen to an episode and it really sticks with you because it was so good, or it really made you think, or maybe because it made you cry, you can really make that host's day by letting them know. And I'm saying that because it recently happened to me. A lot of the time when someone discovers this podcast for the first time, They'll listen to the current episode, and then new listeners will often go and download all the past episodes. I see that all the time. Well, one of the past episodes is called Travis Lost His Son. Travis, of course, was the guest, and his 16-year-old son, Brandon, had just recently lost his life to an asthma attack. Here's a brief clip, and this exchange is only about five minutes after the episode starts. Can you tell us about, I want my listening audience to know a little bit about Brandon. Who, who was he as a person? Can you kind of just describe him? Um, he was a very caring young man. Loved to smile. Um, always happy. Loved hanging out with other kids. Um, his mom had a um, a daycare, and uh, kids just flocked to him. So he got to interact with those kids a lot then. Right. If you haven't heard that one, I highly recommend it. It's one of the most memorable conversations I've had for this show. It's one you'll remember, especially if you're a parent. Well, Chad in Minnesota is a parent. He recently discovered the podcast and he listened to that episode with Travis. And he called the podcast voicemail line and he left me this message. Hey, Scott, it's Chad from Minnesota. I'm going to try not to cry, but uh, I recently listened to your episode of Travis losing his son and uh, I was listening to it while I was sitting in line at my son's school to pick him up. Man, that really killed me. Um, I sat there openly weeping, hoping other people wouldn't see me. And my son got in the car and he noticed my red eyes and tears and he asked me what was wrong 
I pulled over my car and I got out and I hugged him for about 30 seconds and I just squeezed him. And he was really confused. And I didn't say anything to him other than, I just love you. And he said, Dad, you're being weird. And all I said was, that's okay. That really got me in the feels. I appreciate your show. I love it. Man, I've been binging every episode since I found you a couple weeks ago, and it's fantastic. And just keep doing what you're doing. Bye. So I want to say thank you to Chad for that really heartfelt voicemail message and to Travis as well for being willing and vulnerable to share the story of how he lost Brandon. You know, sometimes when I get interviewed by other podcasters or YouTubers about this show, one of the questions that I often get asked is, why do you do this podcast? And my biggest reason is that voicemail you just heard. I've never met Chad in person. Maybe we will meet someday, who knows? But we have a connection because of this story that was so raw and real and it just touched a nerve with him and with me. And I know it had that effect on a lot of other people as well. And not just this episode, but lots of other ones too. So when I hear from someone that my show has had that kind of effect, yeah, that's why I do this podcast. If you ever have a comment about an episode, you're always welcome to call the podcast voicemail line. It's available 24-7 and it's always voicemail. The number is 727-386-9468. Okay, that was just between you and me. And before we get to the listener story, I wanted to let you know that the newest raw audio episode just went live. This is episode 24 These are real 911 calls and the story that goes with them. You can binge all 24 episodes and you can get all the new regular podcast episodes ad-free by being a patron of the show for just $5 a month. You can sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. In this new raw audio episode, an armed man with a long criminal record breaks into a family's home and instructs the homeowner to call 911. Where is William at right now? He's sitting next to me in my hallway. Okay, are we still on speakerphone? We still are. He's right here. Okay. William! Yes, ma'am. Police confront an older woman with dementia who's holding two knives. Drop the fucking knife! Drop the knife! Do it now! Put him on the ground! Put him on the ground! Put it down now! And a visitor at a Florida theme park falls off a ride. Alright, I had help on the way. I have I've received a couple of calls. Is is the patient awake? Uh we don't know. He's face down. He has blood on his feet. We don't we don't know. Someone said he was breathing, but I'm not sure. Correct. Alright, I have help on the way. Are you with him now? Thank you. Yeah, we're all here. So you can get all of those stories and all the other benefits at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, here we are at this week's listener story. If you're new to the show, we end every episode with a short story, like three to five minutes long, from a listener. 
If you have a story like that, you can call the podcast voicemail line at 727-386-9468 anytime, 24-7, or just contact me through the website, whatwasthatlike.com. This week's listener story involves another extreme sport, rock climbing. Yeah, I'm not planning to do that anytime soon either. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Last year, I went out climbing with a friend, just her and I. I was gone climbing with her and another friend, never just the two of us, and she's a bit spacey. She warned me that she wanted to do a climb that had this hard part that I will potentially have to ascend my rope to get through, especially if I fall away from the wall and I'm dangling in midair, unable to reach the wall again. Well, that happened. And I never sent in my own rope before, but I found myself with some gear on my harness 200 feet off the ground, and I tried to figure it out. This was right after, in the middle of COVID, quarantine, so I was about 20 pounds heavier than I usually am, hence why I fell off the climb. It was August, so I was in direct sunlight, well above the tree line, baking in the sun, and I had no idea how to ascend my rope. And I didn't have my phone on me because I didn't have pockets naturally. But I did have my watch on, so I paid attention to the passage of time and how long I was in my harness. I couldn't hear my belayer, and she couldn't hear me. We were screaming each other's names the entire time, but we couldn't hear each other because there was a sound barrier. So I I was dangling for a long time before that was addressed, but until then, I was trying to set up a self-rescue system, and I was like most of the way there, but I didn't have a way to capture my progress. So when I, you know, take slack out of the climbing rope, I would just stand up and there was slack. I wasn't actually like making the rope tight where my new position on the climb was. So I didn't know what I was doing. I was really just flying by the seat of my hands and making up a way to self-rescue myself out of this. A climber came up the route next to me I was able to get his attention, and he was trying to help me set up my rescue system, but at this point, I've been dangling for over an hour in direct sunlight. My hip flexors were definitely starting to get damaged at this point, and there's something called harness trauma that can kill you after 20 minutes of dangling in a harness, but I had made it this far, an hour and a half, still trying to rescue myself, and I ultimately couldn't get myself to ascend the rope because I I was just so busted (laughs) from dangling and dangling in the sun. So we had some other friends that were at the cliff that day that did have their phones on them. So my belayer called them over and I was yelling to them and they were on the phone with my belayer. So they were able to communicate to lower me to the belay ledge where those other climbers were, which was only about 10 feet away from me. And I rappelled down with that party. So I got to the ground safely after about two hours. And my hip flexors were really, really messed up for two weeks after that. Like, I I couldn't climb. I couldn't work out. I was walking kind of funny because I I could have died in a fraction of the time that I was really dangling there. And the weird part about this whole story is that it ends with sirens. There were sirens that we heard when we got to the base of the cliff. And my friend eerily said, we don't like to hear that around here because usually it means a climber died, which 
unfortunately happens at the Gunks a lot because of its proximity to New York City. There's just a lot of climbers that go up there. And like myself, a lot of them don't know what they were doing, but they'll go on and lead climb. I was just following someone, so I was on top rope, which is generally much safer, less scary. Generally. So we heard sirens when we got to the ground. You don't like to hear that around here. And it turned out to be another climber, a female climber, my age, who her gear had ripped out of the wall. She fell while trying to set an anchor, and uh, she was guiding a group. She was a well-known member of the community and fell to her death on a day that I almost died as well. So I had a lot of survivor's guilt after that. It definitely got me in the mindset to improve myself as a climber, to learn rescue, to get my strength back, and to lose that quarantine weight. And and now I go back to the gunks myself, and I do the routes that I want to do that I won't get my followers stuck on. So if you ever go out climbing, make sure you cover with your partner everything that could go wrong. Wasps, snakes, falling rock, dangling in midair, you name it. Cover that, please. Uh...